You are listening to a sermon from the Way of Jesus series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we are exploring the way of life that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Join us Sundays in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at www.doxa-church.com. Matthew 6, 1-4 Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father that sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, Doxa Church. Good to be with you. Hey, my name's Tim Patton, and uh, I'm one of the elders here and serve on the staff team. And I have the privilege of getting to share with you from God's word this morning, which I am very grateful for and honored to get to do. Uh, Yeah, so let's pray and jump right into it, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to get to be in your word to get to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would use this text to change and transform us as a people, that we would get a picture for your plan, for your heart, and for the blessings that you promise us. Jesus, I pray that I would be of some service to my brothers and sisters here today. I give you myself for this task and uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are uh, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, as you are well aware at this point. And the next section of the Lord's Sermon is going to focus on the essence of Christian piety. So through three examples, Jesus is going to walk us through what does it mean to be following his way, the way of Jesus. And it's going to sum up the Christian religion in many ways. He's going to talk about right relationship with God through prayer, right relationship with self through fasting, and right relationship with neighbor through giving to the needy, which is where we'll be at today. And in all of those things, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter, that our hearts are what is the matter. Our sinful nature is in direct competition with God for glory. And in this competition, our strategies are both overt and subtle. But we play the fool because our rewards are then momentary and finite. Instead, Jesus is inviting us this morning to experience eternal and infinite rewards. In the context of relationship, Jesus appeals to us to experience the greater righteousness that he has made available to himself. So let me, uh, we're going to go through, again, we're going to go through God's plan. We're going to talk and look at God's heart. And we're going to talk about God's rewards in giving to the needy. So God's plan. Jesus has a pretty important word in here. It's a a key word for this text. He says, when you give to the needy, not if. 
And in that, Jesus knows his audience. He knows who he's talking to. And the people that he was speaking with understood that caring for the poor was part of their responsibility. It's when there are no government programs, no welfare, no outside assistance and aid, it's the people of God who know that all that they have been given is a gift from him to be used for his plans and purposes. It's them that show up, right? We see this as the primary apologetic of the early church, that the world saw that community of believers, the way that they cared for each other, especially the poor, and there was something attractive to them about it. Acts 2 tells us that they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's what they were doing. What did the Lord do? The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It was their focus on others, their love and care for the needy that, was, that won people over to the gospel. Church, we have been blessed to be a blessing. I'm in a cohort with some other pastors in similar uh, roles as I am. And uh, one of them told us this story last week and I was blown away by it. So it's a three-year church plant, three-year-old church plant. They've got about a $300,000 operating budget. And uh, church is doing well, um, but the demographics have begun to shift towards younger families. And sadly, some of the empty nesters began to feel a little displaced and, and leave the church. And an empty nester reached out to him and uh, asked him to go to lunch. And he thought, oh man, not this guy too. He's been with us since the living room. Like he's been there from the beginning. They go to lunch, he drags himself off, kind of discouraged, planning for the worst. Partway through the lunch, the guy says, well, I have some news. And he thinks, oh man, here we go. My wife and I, you may have heard, my wife and I, we sold our business uh, to some venture capitalists and it did quite well. And uh, so he's like, okay, that's not where I thought this was going. And then he says, um, and we know we have more money now than we could have ever imagined and we know what we want to do with it. <laughs> There's like this dramatic pause. You know, you can, like the ice teas are shaking, like, well, what do you want to do with that? Got some ideas. He says, yeah, so all in all, the church is going to get about one, one and a half million dollars. One and a half million dollars. Three-year-old church plant. $300,000 operating budget. Do the math. That's five years of their operating income in a single gift. Can you imagine what God is going to do with generosity like that in that church at its beginnings? Now they've taken that money, set it aside into a vision fund and they're wisely earning interest on it, continuing to live off their operating. But that they are set up to be a generous church and to see God's generosity through them many more times. It was funny too, they've been preaching through the book of Acts. And if you don't know this story, you can look up Acts 5, you'll maybe get this joke, but uh, he had just preached through Ananias and Sapphira. And so... So he says, you know, you just went through Ananias and Sapphira, so I figured I better give it a week or two. And so the uh, pastor leans over, he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how much did you sell the property for, the business for? And he's like, uh, it's a good way to lose your lunch date real fast. No, I don't think that's what happened. But Jesus here is presuming that uh, tithes have already been given. So that's not what we're talking about here. Giving to the needy was to be above and beyond. It was meant to care for the poor and the marginalized. So while I'd love to give you my best sermon on tithing, that's not technically what this is about. And yet the same core biblical principles apply. Chandler and Geiger in their uh, book, Creature on the Word, they talk about how God set apart his special people, his priests, to be cared for in kind of a special way. 
His priests would be fed. They would get to eat from the sacrifices of his people that they would make for sins. And, and so in that way, he knew his, his priests would always be fed because he knew his people would always sin, right? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 26, for you always, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So do you wonder, church, why God keeps giving you a paycheck? Because then God knows that as he entrusts his stewards with his resources, the poor will be cared for. That is his plan. So how are we doing with that? And honestly, that's the part for this sermon that gets a little bit tricky for me. It's the hard part. Because for me, when I see signs like this, I get skeptical, jaded, and self-righteous. Right? I see a sign like this, and I turn hard-hearted. The sign blinds me to the person that is standing behind it, who Jesus would call my neighbor, a beloved son or daughter, some of whom are with us this morning. But I don't see them. I see this piece of cardboard. What happens in your heart when you see these signs? They're all over our city. Proverbs 14, 21 says, whoever despises the poor is a sinner. But he is blessed who is generous to the poor. So church, how do we see our neighbor? You know, I hear from time to time in our church and we need to correct this. Uh, Something along the lines of, you know, what's tough about doing mission in our context is everybody already has what they need. That's wrong. That's a wrong interpretation of our, our context and our culture. That's not true. Not everybody lives in a, works for a major corporation, pulls in a nice salary and lives in a comfortable house. If, in, in particular, because of this market, because of where we live, because of the affluence, if you lose your job and you're overextended on a mortgage, that's a slippery slope really quickly. But again, God's not worried about that. Because he's constantly blessing his people with resources to care for the needy. The question is, how are we doing with that? So we all, uh, we just, you just asked about, you just shared your worst story on, on uh, deliveries, right? Think back to like Christmas time. You're ordering stuff on Amazon. I'm, I do anyways, I'm sure you do as well. Now let's say that you're, you've just built out your awesome wish list. Every precious item, it's this ginormous list. You cannot wait. You click through and now it's in your shopping cart and it's on its way. You've paid for it. You're ready to go. And you're looking out the window. Hmm, no boxes. Check in the mailbox, no packages. Driveway, no delivery truck. What's going on? Is Christmas gonna be ruined? Come to find out that when the delivery truck driver loaded up the, the, the shipment for your house, he went and he thought, hmm, Wow, that person's got a great taste in essential oil diffusers. I think I'll take this whole cart with me and head home. He never made the delivery. You never got your stuff. It didn't happen. He just kept it for himself. Let's say that you literally found that out. That's what happened to your online order for Christmas. What would you do? What would you want the company to do to that driver? Church, we are God's delivery drivers. He is making shipments to his people all day long through us. And the question is, are the orders getting through? The reality is some of us aren't making the deliveries. We're keeping it for ourselves. And in that regard, we're stealing from God. I'm gonna sit with that for a second. Think through your stewardship of God's stuff last week. How'd you do? 
Do you have any regrets? You wish you would have spent something or used something a little different? No, we can only know how we are to give what God has given to us if we listen to the Holy Spirit who leads us in how to rightly steward what's been entrusted to our care. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't miss it. Right? Jesus is giving us a tip on what earthly treasure looks like. It collects moths and it has rust. Think it has dust on it. Right? So our first kind of challenge, my challenge to you, church, is let's go back to our places, our homes, and take an inventory of our earthly treasure. Right? If it is collecting dust, if we haven't thought about it in a year, if we haven't used it, haven't used it in five, right? If our, here's a good example. If your guest room has turned into your storage room, I will propose to you that you're not using that asset the way that even the builder intended, let alone how God, who gave it to you, intended. So I want us to wrestle with that. Randy Alcorn says famously in Treasure Principle, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you. And the reality is that God has blessed us with an unprecedented concentration of wealth in this country and in this time and age. Some of the studies I read this week said that if you make as much as $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% income earner in the world. Now, if you were God and you were, divvy, it's all yours and you're distributing it and you intend, you have plans and purposes for how that plays out. What would you expect your top 1% earners to do? Jesus is giving us the chance to lay up treasure that is eternal and infinite, treasure that can't be taken away from us. And we invest in that kind of treasure when we see through the the world, through the lens of the way of Jesus. For example, that we belong to God and we belong to one another. We belong to God. We belong to one another. We are to take responsibility for our communities, for the poor among us. God has commanded us and always has commanded his people. Leviticus 23 says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. God has attached his name, I am the Lord, your God, with our work. Leave it for the poor. Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. See, we belong to God and we belong to one another. And this is so important. Is if we don't have a sense of responsibility for our communities, if we don't have a sense of responsibility for the poor among us, or we misinterpret their status, wrongly thinking that everybody already has what they need, then we're gonna miss out on the rewards the way of Jesus is offering us this morning. So we've talked about God's plan. Let's look at God's heart on the matter. And the heart of the matter is that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the interworkings and the motivations of our soul, the thoughts, the meditations of our minds. He knows it all. He sees what's behind each action better than even we do. And the dark side of our sinful nature is that we are in competition with God for glory. We want glory, so we give to get it. Now, we might not say that quite so explicitly, but that's exactly what Jesus is speaking to. It's the motivation behind the action. We're supposed to be crying out, have the posture before the Lord like uh, Psalm 139. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. Instead, Jesus says that we sound trumpets and we pat ourselves on the back. Now there's different opinions on what all these trumpet language is about. And, uh, you know, did the rich blow the trumpet to attract attention to themselves? Hey, I just gave. Did the poor blow the trumpet? This person just gave. Let's honor them. Maybe I can get some more. Were the receptacles shaped like trumpets? I don't know. I'm not sure. But the point is that they all heard the same sound. Right? That sound of money being given. It's that unmistakable sound. And our strategies in the flesh as we compete with God for glory are overt and subtle. Overtly, we hear that sound of ringing, money, and it is beautiful in our ears. And we get, and it pays out its reward, the praise of men. Now, I don't know what, uh, what a, uh, like a Bitcoin might sound like hitting a give box. That's actually probably pretty loud and uh, sounds pretty good. But for the most part, coins in a bucket isn't where it's at for us right? That's not where the glory is. No, it's in the name, right? It's the name on the building, the name on the wall, the name on the brick or on the chair, the name in the personalized, thoughtful thank you letter, the name on the next big fundraiser that is going to change the world, the name on the city's lips that has you marked as the lead giver that is for our city. And God says that if that's why we're giving, That's the only reward we're going to get. Now you might say, Tim, didn't Jesus just say one chapter earlier to let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven? Yeah, yeah, he did. And you should. But the question is, who do they see more clearly? The father or you? And that's where the tension lies. A.B. Bruce says this, we are to show when tempted to hide, and we are to hide when tempted to show. Our strategies in the flesh are also subtle. They require the word of God and the spirit of God to sort through. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the text. He says, I think sometimes this is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us and it will not allow us to escape. There's no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. He ends, but thank God for it. Jesus' words are absolute. If you give to get man's praise, you get no reward from God. If you give to praise God, you will get God's rewards. Now here, I'm not talking about trying to write checks with your eyes closed or reach into your wallet blindfold and not know how much bills you pulled out or that giving statements are evil or thank you cards are inappropriate. I'm not saying that. There are many good and wise practices from online recurring giving to giving statements to thank you cards to fundraisers. That's not the point. I'll say this very clearly. Jesus isn't critiquing the mechanics. He is rebuking the motives. Okay, Jesus isn't critiquing the mechanics. He is rebuking the motives. Fickert and Corbett in uh, When Helping Hurts, 
says that we give out of a God complex. That's what they call it. And I like that language. That there's something about us who have resources when we see the poor, that when we give our motivations, what's going on in our heart is that we think of ourselves a little different than them. We're above. We're going to give to a messy situation to have done something so that we can move away from it and feel okay about that. And we do that, they say, when we have the wrong view of poverty when we don't see what God has already blessed that community with and we make it about our resources instead of theirs, tying them to us, making them dependent on us because we've made it about us instead of about them. Instead, they would advocate for a right view of poverty that levels the playing field. Their definition says that poverty is broken relationship. Broken relationship with God, with self and with others. And in that regard, are we not all poor? Are we not all in need? Our sin has separated us from God. That has left us impoverished. In fact, our sin drained our bank accounts and drove us into debt. Now our balance is negative and we can't pay ourselves out. But this is the good news. Let me read for you this good news. We hear it in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now that's good news, church, because when our bank account was in debt, when it's in negative balance, Jesus comes. He lives the perfect life in our place. He dies on the cross for our sins. He pays our debt. He takes us out of the negative deficit balance and brings it back, but he doesn't leave it there. Even more amazingly, he gives us his account balance. Now we have his righteousness before the Father. And God says in Ephesians that that means that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That he's made us alive together with Christ. That is by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And that is good news for the poor. That is good news for those in need. That is good news for me. I hope it's good news for you. Missional communities at Doxa, okay? We don't want to just talk about things. We want to live them out. So I want to give you a super simple baby step to get to do together. We have something called the Doxa Classifieds. It's our online platform. That ta- it's part of Church Community Builder. And it takes the needs of our church and it meets them with the resources of our church. So it's just docs of family talking together. And I can tell you right now, there are unmet needs and unused opportunities for housing and furniture and jobs. And church, we want to be the kind of people like that Acts 2 community where there are no unmet needs among us. So I wanna encourage you as a missional community, jump in there, take a look, see what you can fill or post something that you need so that the church might get to respond. So what happens if we live this way? What's at stake? What's the risk? What's the reward? Let's look at God's rewards. God's rewards are eternal and infinite. Investment managers live in that tension of risk and reward. High risk, in general, high reward. Low risk, low reward. But Jesus is gonna frame up this investment decision with another dominating variable. He's gonna frame it up under the umbrella of relationship. He's gonna say, your father who is in heaven In fact, Matthew uses the term father 17 times throughout the sermon because he wants to emphasize the reality that Jesus felt when he thought about relationship with his heavenly father. 
And here comes the gift of faith. If God is who he says he is, then our risk is zero and our reward is infinite. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 7, which of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Church, that's, the, that's our struggle in the faith. If God is who he says he is, if we will believe that about him, that he's our heavenly father who sees us, knows us, hears our requests and responds to them with our good in mind, then our risk is zero and our reward is infinite. It's all of heaven. David Martin Lloyd-Jones also gives this advice. He says, don't keep spiritual ledgers. Do things as you're moved by God and led by the Holy Spirit and then forget all about them. How can this be done? There's only one answer, he says, that we should have such a love for God that we have no time to think about ourselves. I have a friend who I'm working on teaching biblical principles for stewardship. It's a part of my role and I love getting to do that with people. And uh, the reality is he hadn't been taught them growing up. Right? And the idea that, hey, we're God's delivery truck drivers. That's a little different than the world's messaging of, it's all about you and your long-term security and comfort and self-gratification. These are two opposing messages. So we're starting with the basics. The same things I teach my kids. When we get from God, right? It says, first of all, that we get from God. Everything we have is from God. We're gonna do three things. We're gonna send it on to God's work. We're gonna save it for tomorrow. And we're gonna spend it today. Okay, so my kids do commissions, they get $3, they've got three jars, send, save, spend. And sometimes I think about, man, and parents, like, clue in on this one. What are we doing to train our kids in stewardship? The world is definitely planning to disciple them and would love to show them how they should think about what comes in. But what are we going to do? What I'm doing with my kids? Send, save, spend. Now think about that. What if they lived... They were formed in that at a young age and lived that way their whole life. Investing 33.33% in the kingdom of God. Saving, right? Because the Proverbs say that it's a wise man who leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That's a good thing. And they lived on 33%. They would have a radically different lifestyle and have a radically different legacy than, than I am on the trajectory for. Now you might say, 33%, Tim, come on, God doesn't ask that of me and I could never live on 33%. That's crazy. You're missing the whole point. That's not the point. It's all God's. 100% of it is God's and he's giving it to you to steward. It's not yours and God's asking for a 10% cut. That's not it, right? We have a, we have a saying around here that the tithe is a tutor. What we mean by that is it's the beginning. It's to build us up in lessons. If you go through the Old Testament, and you look through all the plans and purposes that God has for his stuff through his people. And you look at the tithe and the offering and the free will and the grain offering and the thanks offering and the, and the don't glean and the don't, right? 30, 40% easily of what he entrusted to his people, he intended to go back out for his work. And that gets you a whole lot closer to that 66% I'm training my kids with, right? Now, it's not about percentages, truly. It's not, it's not legalism, that's not it. But what I am saying is that when you look at national averages and even for our own church, if we're scraping and striving to pull off three, four percent of giving just to the church and in our tithe, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. And I'll say it this way, you go to the restaurant, you tip better than that, right? Who would leave a three, four percent tip at a restaurant? Don't raise your hand, that's embarrassing. 
That's embarrassing. We can't tip God. You know, I mean, come on. It's all his and we need to steward it for him. And God's no fool. He knows. He's a wise investment manager. When he sees his people with his, Noah's in his plan, having his heart, he entrusts them to steward all the more for him. So anyways, I'm sorry. Back on to my friend here. So he's learning uh, some basics. And one morning, one Sunday morning, uh, he kind of came to mind. And the Lord gave me a, a verse to pray for him. I sent him a text message, let him know I'm praying for him, shared a verse with him, said, hey, I know it seems crazy for you to give. You got to understand, his financial circumstance is not, not good. Uh, he's not able to make ends meet and he's got over too much debt. And I said, I know it's crazy to give in your circumstances, but this is God's wisdom. He's faithful. When you receive from God, send, save, spend, and in that order, okay? My friend takes a step of faith that morning. He gives 10% of his last paycheck to the church, $45. You can do the math on that. And when I see him later that morning, his face, he's got this smile because it's in his heart because he's just gone on an adventure with God. He's just decided to trust God that he is who he says he is. And there's this joy on his face. And if I'm honest, I was pretty proud of him too. I'm like, this is great. Okay, so we get through the the 9 a.m. gathering. Somebody comes up to me, gives me a check that somebody else wrote. $500. And the memo, it says, for your friend for your friend. You can't make this stuff up. Within one hour of my friend's step of faith, God's spirit sends God's resources through God's people to bless him. He receives 10 times what he gave in his gift because he learned that you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. You know the verse I shared with him? It was Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And the real reward in this thing was seeing my friend get to believe God in a new way, right? The $500 honestly has come and gone for good purposes, but it's not here anymore. The real lesson was that he learned that God, that he has a heavenly father who knows him, loves him, sees him, and is for him. And that, that lesson, that reward will last forever. John Stott asked, what is the reward? I love his response. To see the need relieved. It's the only reward genuine love wants. Right? When through his gifts, the hungry are fed, naked clothed, sick healed, oppressed freed, lost saved, the love which prompted the gift is satisfied. And such love brings its own secret joys and desires, no other reward. One of the families uh, here at Doxa is a foster family. So at Christmas time, they had the opportunity, a couple different organizations in our community asked them for the names of their kids and what they'd like for Christmas. And uh, their family, they're doing just fine financially, not in a lot of need. And so they thought, you know what? I'm not gonna, we don't need to do that. We're not gonna respond to that request. You know, we're good. Someone else could probably use that better. And in their own words, okay, their seemingly humble resistance was actually arrogant pride. And the spirit convicted them of that and said, you know what? No, we're gonna, we're gonna participate. So they sent in their list. The gifts start coming in. As they come in, they set them aside. Christmas morning shows up, right? Before the normal gift giving festivities are about to commence, those gifts come out in front. Bring the kids forward. Kids, listen, these boxes, there's no names on the tags. We don't know who they're from, but we know this. They're from our community. 
because they know we're a foster family. They know that foster care is hard and uncertain and they think we're doing a great job and they love us and they want to encourage us and spur us on in this call that God's given on our lives, right? And I mean, that's waterworks at that point. The kids get to open up their presents and they're tearing up these presents and oh, they all got presents. They all got gifts, stuff they wanted with personalized notes, some of them. And they knew these gifts are special. These are different. And they began to learn and these kids learned and the, and the parents got to learn and see again, it's not about them and what they could provide. No, this is about God using his people to bless his vulnerable children who are in foster care. And the whole family got to learn that not only do they have a God who sees them, but they have a community that sees them and has a sense of responsibility for them. If they had not sent in the gifts, if they had stayed in their pride, right? Kids don't get the gifts. Givers don't get to give. They're stu- lose, lose, lose. Nobody wins. But instead, God led them to be humbled and to be open to receive. And now everybody's been blessed. And again, there was no names on those tags. They weren't there to see the kids' smiles. They're not gonna get a personalized thank you note. Their left hand is never gonna know what their right hand did. But God saw it. And for that, Jesus promises them a reward. I wanna leave us with, uh, with a beautiful picture from the scriptures and a prayer about what free will offerings produce. I wanna take you back to a certain point in the story. If you remember in David's life, David was a shepherd boy. He gets anointed to be king of Israel. That takes a long time to come to fruition. Eventually it does. He rules Israel for about 40 years. And at the end of his life, he wants to build a house for God. He wants to give back to God because he's received so much. He's grateful. And at first that seems like a pretty good plan. But God says, no, David, you've been a man of war. You shed too much blood. You can't build me a house. But your son, your son can. And so Solomon, David's son, his successor to the throne, when he begins to come into the the time that is right for him to take that over, David goes, okay, I know this. Solomon is a young man. He's inexperienced. He's gonna need a lot of resources. This is God's house we're talking about here. So he goes into the treasury and he gives gold and silver and precious stones and metals and all kinds of stuff for the building of the temple. He says, I've given out of the treasury as the king. I'm also gonna give out of my personal house the same gold and silver and stones and precious metals. And what does that lead everybody to do? This text says all of Israel begins to give. The the commanders of thousands and hundreds, the heads of fathers' houses, the king's officials, they all start to give. And can you imagine this this pile of of just, just treasure to the Lord that's being given to him as a freewill offering? And it wasn't about the spoil that was collected. It was about the splendor of God's people knowing his plan, having his heart, and now about to reap his rewards. At the end of that text, it says in First Chronicles 29, it ends with, then the people rejoiced. They rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. That's what happens when you give freely, when you get to know God's plan and have his heart, you experience his rewards and he fills you with joy. I wanna end our time with a prayer, okay? This is a prayer that David prays at the end of that whole ordeal. 
And I want us to just close our eyes. This is the part of the sermon. I'm praying that the spirit would use God's word to move in our hearts, to convict us, to shape us, to root out where we have a wrong view of what we've been entrusted and to spur us on to actually steward it the way God wants, to care for the needy. So let me pray that and read that for us now. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the earth and in heaven is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who is this people that we should be able to offer thus willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house and for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Docs of family, may that be so with us. Amen.